Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's, uh, as always, let's pray and ask God to, to open our eyes by his spirit. We might understand his word rightly. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Christ. Uh, thank you for this passage even. We pray that you would, uh, as always, that you would work in us by your spirit. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, two Sundays ago, we looked at, at verses 27 through 30. And in a lot of ways, we said that that, that text, especially verse 29, is, is kind of central to Mark's gospel. It's not just the middle of the book, you know, as far as counting the chapters. But, but there's a reason Mark puts it in the middle, that it's kind of the high point or the turning point of the entire gospel of Mark. And the reason that it's so central is because of that confession that, that Peter makes in verse 29 where he confesses that Jesus was, is what? He says, you are the Christ or the Messiah. That's, that's, if, you, if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, that's been the message for the first eight chapters. Jesus is trying to uh, show his disciples and everybody he comes across, this is who he, I am. I'm, I'm the Christ. I'm not just some prophet. I'm not just some rabbi uh, wandering around teaching people, but he's the long-awaited Christ or the Messiah. So it's noteworthy in our text, starting in verse 31, that, you know, what's the very next thing Jesus does? Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, and the very next thing Jesus does is he starts to explain to the disciples what that means. It's, it's like he's saying, yes, you're, you're right, I'm the Christ, but what kind of Christ do you think I came to be? And do you really understand what it means to confess me as the Christ? Do you understand what the Christ came to do at his first coming? And we're going to see in our text this morning that he doesn't just take pains to make sure the disciples know. He does do that. That's what the first few verses deal with. But he also turns his attention to the crowds and tells them basically the same thing. He would have the crowds and the disciples know what kind of Christ he came to be. And also, uh, it kind of follows along after that, they didn't just need to know what kind of Christ he was and what what Christ came to do. They and we also need to know clearly what it means 
to follow that Christ. Because the kind of Christ he is has a lot to do uh, with, with what it means to follow him. And we're going to see what that means in our text as well. The first thing that we see here in our text is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. The Messiah came to suffer. The Messiah, the Christ, came to die for the sins of his people. Look at verse 31. It says, uh, Mark writes, And he, Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You know, I, I said verse 29, that confession of Christ is in some way a summary of everything that went before it in Mark's gospel. Well, verse 31, you could say, is a summary of everything that follows. It's kind of a summary and an outline of the rest of the gospel of Mark. The remaining chapters of this gospel in some way basically describe in detail the sufferings of Christ, his rejection by the Jewish religious leaders of his day, they're conspiring with the Roman authorities to have Jesus executed, his death on the cross and his resurrection after three days. It's really what the rest of the entire Gospel of Mark ends up being about. Now, Jesus told them that the Christ, he himself, was going to what? Suffer, verse 31, suffer many things. And that he was going to be rejected, that he was going to be killed and rise after three days, and it's safe to say that that's probably the last thing that the disciples were expecting to hear. When, when Peter said, you are the Christ, we don't know exactly what Peter thought he was saying, but we know he didn't think he was saying this. We know the last thing he would have expected, and we can tell by his reaction, can't we? The last thing he ever thought was going to come out of Jesus' mouth was that Jesus was going to be rejected by his people and die and suffer many things. It wasn't what he thought he was going to say. Jesus spoke of his death, his resurrection. In other words, what's Jesus talking? He doesn't use the word yet. He does use the word in our text, but he's talking about the cross. And he's starting to tell them about it plainly. You know, before this, he teaches a lot of things in parables. Well, now all of a sudden something changes. He's starting to talk about the cross. And he doesn't use parables anymore. He tells them flat out. When it says he began, he began to teach them. This, this was starting to become uh, kind of the curriculum, so to speak, of what he was teaching them. It was his main emphasis of what he was going to tell them. And in verse 34, where Jesus talks about those who were going to follow him must do what? Deny, them, deny himself, take up his cross. That, that word cross in verse 34, it's the first time in Mark's gospel that the word cross is found. And it's going to be the dominant theme from here on out in the rest of Mark's gospel. One, one commentator points out that this section of Mark's gospel, starting in chapter 8 through chapter 10, it's, it's got one basic theme, and it's this. It's what you see in verse 31, that for three straight chapters, we'll see this as we go on in the, in the book, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, each one of those chapters has some kind of summary statement like we find in verse 31, where Jesus is plainly telling them about his death, his suffering, his death, his rejection, and his resurrection. Chapter 9, verse 31, you'll see one there. I won't read it right now. Chapter 10, verses 33 and following have the same thing. So for three straight chapters, you have from the words of Christ himself 
this, this teaching about his rejection, his suffering, his death, and resurrection. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, what's one of the things that we have been saying over and over again that's typical of Mark's Gospel? Mark's Gospel focuses on action. In fact, you know, you don't have very much of Jesus' extended teaching stated for us in Mark's Gospel. So it should kind of jump off the page at you when you get to this chapter and the two that follow it, when you suddenly have Christ's teaching, uh, you know, kind of written out for us. And what does he teach about? His sufferings, death, and resurrection. What, What does that mean? He wanted to make sure that his disciples, and also us as well, don't fail to understand what he had come to do as the Messiah. How was the Messiah to save his people? How was he to save us from our sins? Well, Jesus tells us here and tells his disciples here in those verses. So that verse 31 is key. It's there for the disciples' benefit when Jesus told them. It's also for your benefit and for mine. And it's repeated. You know, what do they say about repeating something in the Bible? If something is repeated more than once, it must be for a reason. Well, if it's repeated three times in three consecutive chapters, uh, it's, it, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say Mark's trying to get us get a point across to us. He's trying to make a point, and he doesn't want us to miss it. Well, it would be kind of hard to overstate the shock that Peter and the disciples must have felt when they heard these words. And when it says Jesus began to teach it, it means he was teaching this over and over again. It wasn't something he said once, you know, off the cuff and then left the subject go. He was beginning to teach this stuff to them clearly. Um, Not only was his death and rejection unfathomable to them, but think about what it must have heard, what it must have sounded to them like to them when he tells them who was going to reject him. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to suffer, be killed, and rise after three days. He's very specific about who's going to reject him, isn't he? When he says that, that, you know, the, the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, that, that's, that's kind of a who's who of the religious leaders of Israel. That's really kind of the roster of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel. So when, they, when those people in particular rejected Christ, it's basically the entire nation rejecting it. Their actions are taken as the actions of the whole. It's an official, it's really an official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They will not have him to reign over them. It's one thing for the, for the Romans to reject him. It's one thing for the Gentiles, for the, even for the, um, the Samaritans to reject him. But for the, the Sanhedrin to reject him was unthinkable. One writer says, The prediction of Jesus' passion contains or conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come as we, might, as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. The suffering of the Son of Man comes rather at the hands of, quote, the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. It should really jump off the page. It, it didn't, Peter wasn't reading it, but it, it stood out to Peter. It was something Peter couldn't conceive of. It reminds us of that passage from our call to worship this morning, Psalm 118, where verses 22 to 23, it says, The stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, the religious leaders. The the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament, in Psalm 118 and elsewhere. Now, Peter didn't understand that, obviously, but he did later on. He quotes that passage in Psalm 118 himself. Now, how did the disciples react to Jesus' plain teaching about his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection? It says, verse 32, he said this, he, Jesus, said this plainly, and Peter took him aside. It's almost hard to imagine this phrase. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, he goes from, you are the Christ, and Jesus saying, good job, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, you know, to all of a sudden he's rebuking the Lord, rebuking the Messiah himself. And think about this. Peter was kind of the spokesperson for the rest. He gets all the blame, all the credit and most of the blame uh, for the things that he did. You know, back in verse 29, when he gave that confession of Christ as Jesus as the Christ, uh, he was kind of their spokesman. And what did Jesus say uh, to him? Notice that in Mark's gospel, he doesn't really include Jesus' words of commendation to him. If you and I were writing the gospel and we were, the, you know, if it was the gospel of me or you, we would probably include the commendation at length and not the rebuke. Was well, kind of one of those, you know, uh, the ring of truth that the scriptures have, where it, it does just the opposite of what you and I would do. Peter excludes the commendation. It's it's implied, but he doesn't he doesn't give us the blessed are you, you know, Simon Bar Jonah. Or Peter is the one whose account lay behind Mark's gospel. He's the one who gave Mark the the information and the words in many ways. Uh, but this is what Matthew says. Matthew includes Jesus' words of commendation for, for Mark when he confessed him as the Christ. In Matthew 16, verses 17 to 19, it says, Jesus says to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Almost remarkable that Peter doesn't have that included in Mark's, in Mark's account. It's a pretty high praise. Some pretty high praise that people have often twisted to mean things that Jesus never intended. You know, the Roman Catholic Church often uses those words to teach that Jesus was the first pope. Well, we can see from our text, uh, Peter was by no means infallible. And this was not a promise of him being the first head of, of the church. Well, you know, back then Jesus says, blessed are you. You know, blessed are you and, and, the, and the Father has revealed this to you. What about our text? What happened to blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah? It kind of goes the opposite direction, doesn't it? What does Jesus do when, when Peter rebukes him about the cross? It says that Jesus, uh, you know, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Same word that, that Mark uses about Jesus beginning to teach them about his sufferings. He took Jesus Christ aside and began to rebuke him. Well, what happened? Jesus began uh, to answer him back. What, notice that, that Mark doesn't include Peter's words. Mark gives the substance of it, that he rebuked him. He doesn't tell us what he said Matthew 16 does give us Mark's words. In verse 22, Peter says to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord. Not so, Lord. Kind of a strange way of, of, of talking to someone you call the Lord. He says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's kind of like Peter saying, Not on my watch. 
The Christ isn't going to be rejected by his people on my watch. The Christ isn't going to be killed if I have anything to say about it. This isn't him putting down the Lord. This is him, you know, popping the buttons on his chest and revealing the Superman symbol on his chest. And this is never going to happen. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. He wasn't insulting him, was he? He wasn't. When it says he rebuked him, that's what it says. But he's saying, you know, this can't this can't be this can't this can't happen. Well, what did Jesus say to Peter in response? Again, this time it wasn't exactly blessed are you, was it? This time he gives what's probably the most stinging rebuke any disciple has ever heard from the lips of the Messiah, from the Savior. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's a pretty serious thing for Jesus to say. He doesn't just say, you know, like we might say, oh, you know, you've got this a little bit off, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. There's, there's some irony here. It's the same kind of phrase that's used later on in the passage when Jesus says, you know, if anybody would follow after me, follow behind me. He's saying to Peter, get behind me in, in, a, in a different sense. Why did he call Peter Satan? You ever wondered about that? You ever wondered why he would use such strong language? Why, why Satan? Was he saying that Peter was lost? No. Was he saying that Christ had suddenly rejected Peter and he was no longer going to be blessed and no longer going to have the keys of the kingdom? No, he wasn't saying that at all. Peter's words were well-intentioned. But however well-intentioned they may have been, what was the effect of those words? What would happen if, if Peter's words came to pass? If it was far be it from the Lord that any of this stuff was, was to happen to him? What's the result? In other words, Peter's well-intentioned words had the same effect, even if well-intended, as, as Satan's temptations of Christ in the wilderness. What was the main goal of Satan's temptation of Christ in the wilderness? Was he trying to avoid Christ being anointed king? No. What he was trying to keep Jesus from doing was going to the cross. He was trying to keep him from saving his people from their sins, from our sins. Without the cross, Jesus could not save anyone. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrew says, there is no remission of sins. Without Christ shedding his blood on the cross and the resurrection on the third day, we would all still be in our sins. That's, that's the unintended for sure, but that's the result of what Peter was saying, And that's why Jesus said what he said. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because you're, you're mindful of the things of men. You're thinking just like a regular man. You're not thinking about the things of God. And that brings us to the second point we want to consider from our text this morning. And that's not just the cross of Christ, but the message of the cross itself. How do you and I respond to the message of the cross? Are we offended by it? Are we ashamed of it? Do we seek to avoid it or minimize it? If, you know, if, if we do, if we seek to minimize it or avoid it, uh, we're, we too are being mindful of the things of men and not of the things of God. Think about the state of, of biblical preaching in our day. How rare is it that the biblical message of the cross is heard in our day full of self-centered, self-affirming, entertainment-oriented preaching? There's not much entertainment in the message of the cross. There's not much self-affirmation 
in the message where Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I think one would have to say that very much of what passes for Christian preaching in our day is practically devoid of the message of Christ and his cross, and it's even more devoid of Christ's message of those who would follow after him, having to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Jesus didn't preach your best life now, as some like to say. He didn't preach that every day is a Friday, as the same so-called preacher likes to say and has written a book by the same title. What do you think Jesus would say to such preaching today? If he told Peter himself, get thee behind me, Satan, what would he say to that kind of, of preaching? I dare say it wouldn't be well done, good and faithful servant. You, know, you might expect, we might expect, I think, the devil's message to be kind of horrifying and grotesque. I think that's what we're tempted to think. We think. When I say the word devil or Satan, what do you think of? If I were to say, you know, what, the, the words of the devil, what do you think of? You might think horrifying. You might think spooky or, or, or scary. But is that really the case? Is it not really the case that the message of Satan is often smooth and pleasant? It's often reassuring in some odd way. What's the first message that Satan ever said? Really, it's the same as he says now. He said to, to, to Eve in the Garden of Eden, you will not surely die. Or things like, has God really said? It's the same thing he says today. The devil's message is smooth, it's pleasant, and it often consists in telling people just what they want to hear. Satanic preaching, as I would call it, primarily consists in one thing. Really, it's the absence of the cross of Christ. Do you think satanic preaching uses a Bible? Satan used the Bible. When Satan tempted Christ, what did he, what did he use? He misused it, but he twisted scripture. And Jesus answered with scripture right, right back. Well, Satan himself, I think, is perfectly content to have Jesus preached in churches. He doesn't mind if Jesus is preached as a political messiah, kind of used as a wax nose form to fit whatever left wing or right wing agenda that we prefer. Such preaching makes no mention of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Satan is probably content with moralistic preaching in our churches. Preaching that focuses on Jesus as, as some kind of a means of self-help or self-improvement. But mere morality as religion, even in the name of Christ, has probably damned more souls to an eternity in hell than all the cults combined. The message of the scripture is not, you know, I always used to sort of joke that it sounds like a Home Depot. You, know, you can do it, we can help. That's not the message of, of scripture. Morality as religion in the name of Christ is nothing but a fig leaf that cannot cover our sins and shame. Only the blood of Christ on the cross can wash sinners like you and like me clean from our sin. But what about preaching cross, the cross of Christ? What about preaching Jesus' death and resurrection? Such preaching will probably never really be popular, will it? Jesus tells us here in our text, an adulterous and sinful generation will not tolerate such preaching, will not tolerate Christ and his cross. In fact, what will they do? The, the, the implication in our text is the unbelieving and sinful generation will rather tempt us to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. And that probably spells suffering of some kind. 
But it's preaching of the cross of Christ, as, as foolish as it may seem, that's the kind of preaching that God uses powerfully to save sinners. What did Paul summarize his own preaching as? He says in, in one of his epistles, we preach Christ and him crucified. Christ's death, his crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, he tells the Corinthians, was of first importance. It's the main thing that he taught. Jesus himself in John chapter 12, verses 31 to 32 says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What's he talking about there? The cross. And I think by extension he's talking about the the proclamation of his cross and resurrection, that when we lift him up in our preaching, lift up his cross and resurrection in our preaching, that he will, will draw all people to himself. Do you see why Satan hates the cross so much? Why Satan does everything he can to downplay and to keep people from hearing of the cross of Christ. It's not just that it's the instrument that Christ uses to draw sinners to himself, which he does do that. What else does he say happens when he's crucified? The ruler of this world will be cast out, dethroned. His crucifixion and resurrection was the dethronement of the ruler of this world. It's the means by which the seed of the woman that Genesis 3.15 talks about crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. It was Satan's defeat and the victory of Christ and his people. Well, that brings us to our third point, and that's the cost of discipleship. I borrow that title from the, that, that name from a title of a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. One commentator puts it about uh, this way. He says, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. And that's really the point, isn't it? If you think, if, if you're in Peter's shoes and you expect the Messiah to be this conquering king, overthrowing the might of the armies of Rome, and, and you know, getting, getting the Israel back to its glory days, uh, you're, you're going to be very eager. Who wouldn't be eager to follow such a Messiah? You want to be on the winning team. You want to be a part of the glory of Israel returning. But what does Jesus tell them? That's not the kind of Christ I came to be this time around. He does mention glory in verse 38, but that glory wasn't going to come yet. This is what he says. It says, Mark writes in verses 34 to 38, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now think about Peter's rebuke of Christ here for a second. Um, was Peter concerned for Jesus' safety? Yes. We don't want to, you know, misconstrue. Peter, Peter loved Jesus. Peter didn't want to see any harm come to Jesus. But, you know, Peter may have been a simple Galilean, you know, backwards fisherman, but he could do the math, couldn't he? He wasn't a dummy. He knew what this meant. If Jesus was going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed for what he was going to do, 
what was going to happen to those who were following him? If that's the kind of Christ he was going to be, the people following him had a far different outcome ahead of them than what they might have expected. Peter knew if Jesus suffered and he was following Jesus, he was very likely to suffer right along with him. If Jesus was going to be rejected and killed by the leaders of Israel, Peter and the others following him were going to share in the sufferings of the same. Similar thing. So Peter, you know, what did Peter do? Peter took Jesus aside privately. He didn't want to embarrass the Lord, right? Took him aside privately and began to rebuke him. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, okay, Peter, just between you and me. Peter looks at his disciples and then calls to the whole crowd. This wasn't a private message at all. He turned to the crowd and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Think about that. This isn't just a message for the 12. This isn't the message that we might think of wrongly as, you know, for we sometimes think of, uh, I don't know how else to put it, kind of levels of Christians. You know, you've got the regular Christians, and then you've got the disciples, and then you've got the apostles and the, you know, the, the missionaries and everybody else. Jesus doesn't have that kind of a hierarchy here. A disciple is a Christian. Someone who's not a disciple is, is not a Christian. And this message wasn't just for the apostles themselves. It was for, what does he say, if anyone, if anyone wants to come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Anyone. His cross, in some sense, leads to our own. That's what he's not even hinting. It's what he's saying. And in Peter's case, that that became literally true, didn't it? You might know from church history, Peter was crucified. He was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel he was worthy to be sharing in this exact same kind of death that his Lord had suffered. So there is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to it. You have to be willing to deny yourself. In other words, you have to be willing to actually follow Jesus and put his will above your own. And that involves sometimes a willingness to suffer for Christ's name, for his sake, to take up your own cross and follow him. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you might be a lot of things, but a Christian is not one of them. The cost of discipleship, though, is nothing compared to the value of your eternal soul, is it? That's kind of the, 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 the it, it's, it's a strange paradox here in our text. You have to deny yourself, but in some sense, in denying yourself, you're gaining the most important thing you could ever get. Those who reject Christ, in some sense, don't consider the value of their eternal soul highly enough. And they settle for things that pass away with this life and this life alone. As Jesus says, what does it profit a man in verse 36? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange or in return for his soul? Your soul is more valuable than the entire world. If you had all the world itself in this life but lost your soul, you would have a bad bargain. It reminds me of the words of Charles Spurgeon. He wrote a book called Lectures to My Students, and it's a, a book kind of written to those who are preparing to enter the gospel ministry, but I think his words apply to us, each of us as well. He says this, Spare neither labor in the study, prayer in the closet, nor zeal in the pulpit. If men do not judge their souls to be worth a thought, 
compel them to see that their minister is of a very different opinion. Now, people value all kinds of things in this world, not bad things, good things. But they often don't give a second thought to their soul. They often don't give a second thought. They, in fact, they, they flee from the very thought that there's a world to come, that this isn't all that there is. The, their best hope is, is often something along the lines of, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. And they, they hope, they think that after that, there's nothing. But that's not what it is. That's not the way things are. Your souls will live on for eternity. Whether they will be with the Lord is the question or not. So are you trying to hang on to your own life by rejecting Jesus and his cross? Do you value the things of this world more than your own soul? Christ had a far different opinion of that. Christ himself valued the souls of sinners so highly that he laid down his glory and laid down his life to save sinners. Turn to him if you have not already done so. Turn to him by faith and live. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that we find here in Mark 8, these clear words that talk about the importance of Christ and his cross, the centrality of it, that, that it's only by his death and resurrection that sinners can be made right with you, that, that our souls can be, can be saved. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ's call to discipleship, that he reminds us of what it means to follow him, that if we follow him, we shouldn't be shocked if in some ways at times we suffer for his name's sake. Give us grace. Uh, work in us by your spirit, those of us who know you, to be sharing in Christ's humility, to be willing to share in his sufferings, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow him, knowing that one day if we share with him in his sufferings, we will also share with him in his glory, which is worth more than anything this world could ever hope to offer. We thank you that your word tells us the sufferings of this present age that we sometimes go through in this life for following Christ are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in your saints. We thank you for this. We ask that you would, if anyone does not yet know you, that you might open their eyes even today, that they might turn to Christ and have life abundantly in his name. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.